Welcome to Becoming CEO, your go-to podcast for building, growing, and scaling a profitable online business that unlocks your dream life. I'm your host, India Butler, a multiple six-figure CEO and business coach, former school teacher, CEO mama, and a marketing strategist. Each week, my guests and I take you through the real and raw behind the scenes and what it takes to become a successful CEO. On this show, you can expect to learn about money, hardship, leadership, marketing, mindset, and everything that goes into building your very own freedom-led business. Now let's dive into today's episode. This episode is going to be a little different than my usual, as I'm going to be firing through the 21 most popular questions that I get asked as a CEO and entrepreneur. Now, across all of my programs, my content, my communities, I like to keep a running list of all the questions I get asked from people. So let this be the very first lesson, the very first takeaway for you from this episode. Make content so much easier for you by just taking inspiration from what is already directly in front of you. Those people who are asking questions in the DMs, who are asking questions in the comments, whenever you put a question box on your stories, whenever someone asks a question in one of your calls with your clients, just start collecting a list of all of these questions that you're getting asked because it's going to form amazing market research. You're going to get amazing content ideas and you're going to start to notice the key questions that keep coming up again and again. So today with you, I want to go through the most popular 21 questions and who knows if you really enjoy the style of episode, I might just do it again. So please be sure to tell me what questions you would love for me to answer for you. But for now, let's just get straight on into it because we've got a lot of questions to fire through. Question number one, what do you do in the first 30 minutes of your day? Now, immediately from when I get out of bed, when I first wake up, it depends on if it's a work day or the weekend, but generally if it's like a work day, Monday to Friday, I'll get straight out of bed. And if I'm sleeping with Marvin, the dog, then I will let him out for a wee So he goes out to the garden and I try and just take that time just to take a moment to breathe in some fresh air. It's really nice just getting the cold air or if it's in the summer, getting the hot air and just the first thing that's hitting me is the outside. So I'll just take a moment whilst Marvin's sniffing around the garden and having his first morning break. Then I come inside and I try to get dressed and get ready straight away. I don't like to hang around in my pajamas that much unless I'm having a intentionally lazy day. This is just personal preference. I find that if I'm in my pajamas on a day where I've got things I need to get done, it just totally changes my energy, my, my motivation levels. So I go straight back to the bedroom. And I will start with my toiletries, teeth, face, etc. I usually do my heatless curlers with my hair. So it takes me like two seconds to do my hair. And I'll get dressed and I'll come straight back through. I'll feed Marvin. I'll feed myself. I won't have coffee until after breakfast. And if I have time, if I don't have to rush off somewhere straight away, I quite like to grab my little notebook and I like to do some form of mindset work, whether that's journaling, whether I do a visualization practice or whether I just stick with some affirmations if I've noticed that I do have quite a busy day, then I like to do my affirmations with my, you know, when I'm doing my makeup, when I'm doing my hair, something where I can just tune in and do it together. So the first 30 minutes of the day, the intention there is just getting ready as quickly as possible. I don't like to spend too much time in my pajamas, as I said. And one thing that James, my husband actually does, which I love, he's only been doing it a few times. It was from an episode in Ted Lasso where he says, you should only take as long as one song easy lover to get ready so then James for a few times I've seen him do this and it's really funny he'll play the song easy lover and you'll try and get ready in that time so dressed and toiletries done in that time for me that wouldn't be possible so maybe it would be you know a 10 minute podcast episode I'll try and get ready in that time question number two 
how do you manage a client defaulting on a payment? So this is a really important SOP that you need to have set up in your business, even if you're just on your own or whether you have a team. You want to know very clearly what it is you're doing when a client does default. That way, you're not handling the situation from a reactive state. You just are following your procedure and eventually it can be something that you actually hand over, you delegate to a team member so that you no longer have to deal with defaulted payments. The first thing, generally speaking, like 80% of the time, 90% of the time, a defaulted payment is just because either they need to update their credit card information or there just wasn't enough money on that card on that day. People move money around all the time, so I don't tend to think anything of it. At the time, obviously, when I first started, I was handling this myself. Now we have automations in place and very rarely will I then get involved. I tend to only get involved when we get to like a week or two weeks late, for example. So the first thing is if they have obviously defaulted on the payment, then immediately whatever system you're using, you want to send them an email or you want to send them a notification saying your payment has defaulted. Please click this link so you can update your credit card information. If you're at a place where you're doing everything manually, you don't use any systems, then obviously it's going to be worthwhile at least setting up an email where it's a standard template email and you send them the link to, if they are just sending transfer emails, you potentially, for example, if they're not clicking on a button to pay, if they're sending you money by transfer, this is what I mean. This is where you would just say, we've noticed that the payment hasn't come through. We just wanted to send you our details once again, just in case there's anything missed or you need to, you, you forgot for whatever reason. That's the first email. Then we'll give them two days. We'll give them 48 hours and a second email gets sent again saying, unfortunately, your payment is now, you know, two days late. At this point, we'll notify them that they are at risk of being suspended from the program temporarily or potentially permanently. So temporarily will be if it gets to a week long, we then remove them from the program for, you know, just temporarily until it's resolved. Unless that person has come to me and spoken to me personally. Like I have had people come to me and say, I've just had a very sudden medical expense that I need to pay, but I know that I will be able to pay you in two or three weeks. I, I just need a, a little bit of time. If you tell me in advance, I will be, of course, very understanding. I understand that things happen in life, but the issue is when people don't tell you in advance that something's going wrong, that's where you then have to make sure you have these boundaries in place. So by two days after, we just send them another one saying it's two days now, just to give you a warning that this needs to be resolved. Here's a link to resolve it. If it's not resolved, then you will be suspended from the program. You will lose access, whatever it is. And we may have to move forward into the next stage. And I just, maybe at this point, will remind them of the contract, remind them of whatever obligations there are. If they still haven't paid at this point, it's very, very unlikely. But if they still haven't paid at this point, it could be that they are potentially out of integrity. They are defaulting on purpose. So then it gets to at least, for example, if we give them till the one week window. So at this point, we'll send them another email every two days to pay another two emails. This is all automated. When it gets to the seven, seven week, seven day window, so the one week part, this is where we'll then take it to the next stage and say, we've noticed that the payment hasn't gone through. You, Your services, your access has now been suspended. If you would like to resolve this, please pay here. And then at this point, this is where I will be notified. I will get involved. And if it's a client that I'm working with in close proximity, I will reach out to them personally. I will send them a message, an email, and I'll say, hey, my team have just notified of me of this. Is everything okay? Can I help with anything? Is there anything you need to make me aware of regarding the financial situation? How can I support you with this? And I'll always come at it from a place of understanding, just in case, for whatever reason, even though they should have spoken to me before, if there is something going on, I'm going to then make this obviously a coaching moment for them to learn, okay, yes, you should have told me before, but here's what we can do. So that way, next time they're learning for the better. 
at the end of the day, I mean, for my client's long-term success, I want them to benefit from this. So from there, then we'll see how it goes. If it continues and they still ignore, they ghost. This is where I have on hand a collections team. Essentially, this is an outsourced agency that I use who will collect the funds from me. And the issue with this is that these guys have like a 90, 95% success rate. I've only had to use them a handful of times. And the, what happens is if you get to that stage, the client is actually going to be, they're going to struggle even more because they're going to have to pay for the fees that it costs me to pay for this legal team. And it could impact their credit score because this is then going to be taken to potentially as far as the judicial process. So in the UK, for example, there'll be a court order at one of the stages where it says there's a demand. And so then it will flag up on their credit score. So I've had to do this a few times, um, not that many times, but only a few times. And they do have a very good success rate. So at this point, if I'm literally just about to hand this over to the legal team, I'll send one more email myself. This has all been templated, but it comes from my email address, not the support inbox. And essentially, I will say, I really want to avoid this with you as I care about you, you're a dear client. I want to let you know what the next stage is and to give you one final chance to be able to rectify this before we send this over. And then that email will essentially say, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're at risk of. They have a 90, 95% success rate. Um, if you would like to go onto a plan to pay the recovered fees, I'm happy to discuss this. But either way, you're at risk of paying the total cost you owe me and then some. And so you're really entering dangerous territory here. And that's essentially how I would manage a client defaulting on a payment. But you really want to have a streamlined SOP. And ideally, you want to get to a place in your business where you can separate from this. You can hand this over to your team member. Number three. What investment do you regret and what lesson have you learned from it? Interesting question here. I hate regrets. I used to live my life really in fear of regretting things, which then meant that I was in constant paralysis and making decisions. Whereas now I don't look at things as a regret. There are definitely some things that are weren't a positive experience, but I don't regret them ever. So I'd say the only investment I've ever made that really I would have preferred it gone another way, but I still learned a lot from it was rushing too quickly to hiring a marketing agency without actually looking at whether they were going to support my needs at my level in my business at that point. So essentially, quite early on, I not quite early on, but like a year in, I invested, it was going to be about 5k a month in a marketing agency. And there was nothing against the marketing agency themselves. But it was just a very, very different experience than what I expected. It was presented in a way where it was going to feel very much like they are strategic, that they will take my content to another level, that they will be better than I am. And then when it comes into it was that there was just a lot of rushing. It felt like a lot of, other than the CEO of this agency, who was very, very good with content, the ones who were generally handling my content, the team members, had very little knowledge, at least from what I could see, and it just wasn't being implemented the way I believed. There was also some moments where I noticed that in the copywriting that they were writing for me, they were just blatantly lying, saying things that I'd never said and making grand statements that I would never do. So I then had to correct a few times to say, at no point I've ever said that I've achieved this. At no point has this ever happened. So can we just make sure it's all honest, it's transparent? And then I got to a point where it was just things were being delayed and things just weren't being up to standard. And the materials, like you could see my content, you could see what my aesthetic style was. And when I saw the graphics that were being created, it just felt like someone had slapped some crap together. So it just felt like for a 5k a month for people who, the, the CEO, who's an absolute genius, she's a marketing legend, love her. It felt very mismatched from what I was expecting. So that's the only one I would say. But the lesson that I learned from that was it was nothing on them because at that point, 
my, for me, what was more important was maintaining my community, maintaining the quality of the content I was putting out. And I didn't necessarily need to outsource all of this. I could have maybe just focused on hiring one assistant to help me with producing the content. And I maintained the role of being the strategy. So I maintained the role of coming up with all the content and I just had someone come in. So that's what I've got now in my business is I have someone who helps me with just production. And I've completely kept everything that's to do with the strategy in my my box because that's what I, I prioritize doing. Question number four, do you and your husband share finances? We do and we don't. So we still have our own personal bank accounts. We have at this point quite a few bank accounts where we have everything spread over. We've got our investments, our our LISAs, which are lifetime instant savings accounts. We've got our joint account, which is just one where it's due with all of our you know co-expenses, et cetera. We've then got um, our work account. So I've got my business account and I've got my business savings. So we've got loads of accounts, but there's nothing. I don't see my money as my money and his money as his. It does feel very much blended. So we do share finances. And actually, James, he is very, very smart when it comes to money. He's very interested in learning about investments. He's spent like the past year or so really, really up-leveling his development when it comes to finances, investments, wealth generation. So He's coming into the company even more so now as a CFO. So he's going to take full charge of our income, our revenue from the business side, but also as us as a couple, he very much makes our decisions for our investments. I'm very involved. I don't want to be one of those women who doesn't know what's going on with money. That's kind of how my parents have been. Like I love them, but my mom doesn't have any clue what's going on with money sometimes. And she just likes, she likes knowing my dad handles it all. For me, that stresses me out. I need to know what's going on. I just don't always have the mental capacity to make a decision regarding it. Whereas James is brilliant at that stuff. So this is where it's going to be his decision-making process. And I will simply just, we'll have our money dates. We'll have our conversations at least once a month. We'll sit down and have a serious conversation about things. And we both can see each other's accounts. We both have access to each other's accounts. So there's complete transparency there. Question five, what are your plans for maternity and having a family whilst running your business? So for maternity, I'm due roughly in August and I've been doing a lot of research, a lot of asking around for people who have actually been a business owner whilst being a mum, just asking for advice on maternity. The overwhelming response has been don't take time off early because you're probably going to be very, very bored. Like try if you can to give it until the last week until you start to notice signs that you're about to go into labor. Allow yourself to have that project, that distraction, unless obviously you've got a lot of work to do for nesting and getting set up. For us, we have a lot of house support where we're living, James and I. So we've got a housekeeper, we've got a gardener. We're looking into getting a someone to help us with our cooking. So like not really a private chef, but kind of along those lines, someone who's going to help us with just preparing more meals for us and potentially a nanny as well. So we've got a lot of support in the house. And a big thing for us is going to be making sure that we're ready with like the, the nursery and the room, which we're going to do this summer. I'm kind of leaving it to the last minute, really, but it's fine. We'll get this sorted. So with that in mind, we're both on the same page. James Knight, when he has the summer off, he's got from middle of June all the way until middle of August off, so two straight months. We're both just going to go really deep into the back end of the business. This is going to be a great opportunity for James to go fully immersed in the business. He's never had the opportunity yet to really get into the details of my company. And we're going to really set some systems up for like just, you know, things to take over in the background. So we're going to do a lot of funnel work. We're going to go through all of my products, all of my courses, and just make sure that they're set up in a way to really have amazing impact for our clients. And also to just remove a bit more of the pressure on me to have to support 
in every single area. So we're just going to look at really streamlining the business. We're also going to set our 2023-2024 revenue plan. So we're going to start looking for next year together. We're going to start planning that out as well. So that's kind of my plans. I'm not going to take off until I know I'm basically about to go into labor. And generally, you can get some signs. You can see your body starts showing you signs that you're close to labor. So that's when I will essentially just message my clients. I'm going to keep all of the clients who are on my roster, so the ones who actually have access to me, I'm going to let them know pretty much the week of that I'm going into maternity. And then from them, I will be on indefinite leave. The plan is to have between a month and six weeks of actually fully being off. So a month and six weeks where there's no calls. I might, for example, be checking emails if I need to, checking you know certain communications if I really, really need to. But there is absolutely no expectation. And my clients know this. They're going to be communicated with this. So then with that in mind, what we're going to do, and this was my coach's idea, but it's a brilliant idea, and we're going to set it up, is that in July, before things kick off in August for me, is that every one of my close proximity clients, we're going to have a bonus call, you know, a 30-minute call, where we're going to plan out how we can make the time that I'm taking off from maternity their best month yet, or their best six weeks yet. So we're essentially going to do like a strategic planning session where we're just going to map out all the actions they can take, what they're going to do day by day. And they're going to just have a very clear roadmap for what they can do whilst I'm off. So they feel really supported. They feel like they got a clear direction and that I can just take that time off. And when we come back, we can then do a little bit of a report. How do things go? So that's my plans for maternity. And this summer, just before maternity, we've also got a few launches happening. That way I can just bring in, obviously, an additional boost in income, bring in an additional you know, chunk of clients as well. And then I can go off on maternity and come back knowing that things have been set up for me rather than coming back and feeling like I've got to do a whole surge of launches after. I think now is going to be the best time for me to do it before whilst I've, I feel like I've got this nesting energy. Okay, question number six. Why do you think some people seem to see really fast results and others struggle for months and for years? The simplest way to put this is some people have an all-in energy in their business. And those are the ones that I see have like really, really quick results, almost like overnight kind of results. And they're the ones who are all in. There's absolutely no way this is not happening. So there's that kind of unconditional energy. And then the ones that I notice, the common pattern that I'm seeing between every single person I've ever spoken to who has been in that struggle energy, they seem to have this element of having one foot out the door. They seem to have this element of just always expecting something to go wrong or always expecting that this is just not going to happen for them. And there's just a shred of doubt in everything that they do. Whereas the ones who see really fast results, there's never that doubt. I don't I don't feel it. I don't hear it in their energy. They're all in. They're not necessarily all in in terms of like constantly making financial investments, although they are very willing, but they just seem to be all in, which means because of that, because they're fully into their business, they're committed, they believe in what they're doing. It means that making decisions happen so much quicker for them. Taking action feels so much easier and so much more fun for them. And it just feels like this is going to happen no matter what. It's just a case of when it happens. And that's out of their control. They don't care about when it happens. They know it's happening. So they're just going to do the work that needs to be done because they know that either way it's going to come in two days or it's going to come in two weeks or it's going to come in two years. But either way, they just know it's going to happen. So that's a big difference I find. It's not like that some people are doing some things strategically differently to others. It all comes down to your mindset, your belief system. And the common thread I see is that those who are struggling just have this kind of energy of one foot out. Number seven, what are your current business expenses? So currently we spend about 1000 2500 a month on systems. So for example, it's about 400 a month on Kajabi, which is where we host our courses. 
It's about 50 quid a month for Show It, which is our website, which isn't that bad, actually, considering Show It is amazing. We then spend probably 100 to 200 on ClickUp and our systems, like our project management tools. These are obviously everything for us. We're managing launches, team, everything. Everything lives in there. So yeah, from systems and then obviously all those other smaller things that come up, it comes up to about, I think, 1500 a month. Oh yeah, like active campaign, for example, is quite pricey because of when you get more leads, when you get more contacts, the, the cost goes up. But we do love active campaign because of the funnel and automations it can provide us. It is just a bit complicated. Then in terms of my business expenses, we obviously, I have my own mentors. I have my own team members that I pay for. So I've got some who are employees, which means that not only are we paying their salary, but then we have to pay things like their national tax, employer tax. We have to pay whatever you know other expenses come in. This is where I know the numbers, but I don't deal with it. I've got team members, like my employees, they actually do the payroll and whatnot for me. James is going to be taking over that very soon as our CFO. And then on top of that, we then just have our general, you know, savings that we put aside for taxes and whatnot a month. I try to put away like at least 10 to 20% every month just for additional fluff. What I mean by that is just like to have a pot where I've got some leeway if I need to protect myself. So this is on top of the taxes I put away for. Eight, who have you worked with and who are you currently working with? So this is in terms of mentors and investments, I'm guessing in that sense, which kind of continues from the last question. So my very first coach was a woman called Claudia Widom. And I was, I remember I was in the office at school as a teacher and I'd made the decision literally the night before that I was going to go into coaching. I was going to go from acting as a VA slash marketing assistant to really just becoming a coach because that's what I truly wanted. And then she popped up, I was watching her stories and then she said, Hey, do you want to make three to 5k a month? Tap yes on the stories. I tapped yes. She DM'd me. We got back and forth and then within 24 hours, I was in as a private client. And so she was my first uh, coach and we worked together for four or five months. Amazing because she really helped me with the business foundations. Then from there, I re-signed with her into her mastermind, which was another five months, I believe. And this mastermind was my first experience of being in a group program. So I, I learned a lot from it. But I think the key thing that I noticed was I was at a place in my business where I was ready to be really expanded. And Claudia herself is an amazing coach, but I think I needed to be in a mastermind where I wasn't surrounded by people who are at the same level or below. I needed to be surrounded by people who were at a, like a different level, a higher level than me. I wanted to be the small fish in a big ocean rather than a big fish in a small ocean. So that was my first coach. I worked with her in those two containers. I also hired, I can't remember her name, but I hired someone for an intensive very early on as well. Then from there, I worked with Demi, your biz coach Demi on Instagram, and I was in her mastermind. I rejoined that again for another six months. So that was two two lots of six months. So I worked with Demi for a whole year in total, essentially. And then about, let's see, I would say seven months in, I then joined. So seven months in of working with Demi, I then joined Sabrina Phillips Millionaire Mastermind, which has been unbelievable. I'm still part of it now. It's a 12-month mastermind. So I'm about halfway through now. Uh, I can't really see myself leaving. She's just very, very similar energy to me, very, very similar mindset to me. She's been around since, you know, seven years ago now. So she's like one of the OGs in the space. And I really value long-term stability and security in a business. I'm not really someone who like wants to learn from people who are very much like just creating a lot of one-off content and programs. I love the idea of building assets and building a machine that works for me. And like, so people like Sabrina, her business model, her mindset, her perspective in life was 100% aligned with the way I wanted to build my business. And then a recent investment I've made, which has been amazing. Oh, actually, let's do one thing. 
I worked with Taylor Quinn for a six-week experience in private, which was amazing. She's a mother, and I really wanted to have that sample of working with someone who was a mum, because at this point, none of my mentors were mums, and I knew at this point I was pregnant. So I worked with Taylor at the beginning of 2023 for six weeks, and this was just amazing to have that experience of seeing someone in action behind the scenes who's running a seven-figure business who's also a mum. And that really got me thinking, I definitely need support from other mum entrepreneurs. And so then the week that I ended with Taylor, I was considering staying with her. I was very much ready to pull the trigger. And then this email landed in my inbox from Natalie Ellis, the CEO and co-founder of Boss Babe, saying that I'd been accepted into her mastermind CEO Mama, which is another 12-month mastermind, which... It's just unbelievable. So Natalie Ellis is the facilitator. She leads it. And some of the women in this space, it's incredible. We're part of cohort two. So there's some amazing mamas in this group that there are definitely some names that you would recognize. I'm not going to list them out because, you know, different storage. You might, if you're my clients, you know who I'm working with. It's amazing. But these are some incredible, incredible women. And I feel like a teeny fish again. Like I'm not far off seven figures. We're very much knocking on the door of seven figures this year. But seven figures is the small end of the scale of this mastermind. A lot of these women are at the multi-seven, eight-figure mark. Some are even making, you know, 15, 20 mils. So this really, and the kind of business model they're running is very aligned with my kind of business model. It's very much about building a sustainable business that supports your life rather than an Instagram business that just happens to make a lot of money. So those are the investments that I'm in. Very worth it. Nine, how do you get out of procrastination cycle? This is a big one. Procrastinating, it's not actually the thing itself that you're procrastinating. It's because I literally just listened to an episode by Mel Robbins on this. So I'm going to recommend you go listen to it. But essentially, when you are stuck in a procrastination cycle, it's probably because something is stressing you out. And so every time you're trying to sit and do the work, your brain is like, hey, what the hell? How dare you try and get me to create content for the next month when this thing is going on, that there's this thing that we're seriously stressing about. So what you need to do is you need to really get clear on what is it that you're currently worried about? What is currently weighing you down that is really stressing you out? So do some journaling on that, really get clear. From there, then you want to do is just address that face on and ask, well, what do I need to do to resolve this? What do I have control over and what do I not have control over? Take action on the things that you do have control over, the things that you don't, release them. Recognize that they're not yours. Then after that, every time you do catch yourself procrastinating, forgive yourself. Just be like, oh, two hours have gone by. Oh, that's annoying, but oh well, forgive myself. What can I do? Why am I procrastinating? Go back to what I just said. Okay, cool. But what can I do that's really fun that's just going to get me back into the motion of working? Like movement is where motivation comes from. So you can't wait for motivation to kick in. You need to just get moving. So find a really easy task, something that's really, really simple that you can just get started with that's going to get things moving. If you are stuck in a procrastination cycle, the expression swallow the frog, I think it's called, it could be wrong, bite the frog, swallow the frog, which essentially means doing the hardest task first isn't actually going to help you because you're just going to be overwhelmed. In this situation, you need to do the easiest tasks first and just start building the movement again. Get momentum going because that's where your motivation is going to kick in. Question 10, what do you do when you celebrate a milestone in your life and business? For me, I love to go out for dinner. Like I'm just a massive foodie. Before I started this business, I actually had a food blog. So my favorite way to celebrate is going out for dinner and you hit restaurant, going to really trendy places or even cooking my own meal. I don't necessarily care about always having a drink. I'm actually not a massive drinker. Like I love alcohol in terms of appreciating alcohol for a good taste, but I don't like getting drunk. I hate getting tipsy. I'm terrified of getting nauseous. So like I always just 
drink alcohol if I really want to enjoy the experience. So that's my go-to way to celebrate is going out for a meal with James, with my family. Generally, it's just me and James, and I absolutely love it. Question 11, when you started your online business, what inspired you and what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? So what inspired me when I first started was realizing that I could absolutely live the lifestyle I wanted. And for ages, I felt very bad about the fact that the thing that motivated me to get started was very selfish because there's this narrative in the space that when you get started, you need to be coming in from a noble perspective. You need to be coming in with this agenda or with this ulterior mission that's like very much about supporting everyone else. And you've got to come in very, very like, essentially, I just want to help. I just want to serve, which in reality, for the majority of entrepreneurs I've spoken to, they started their business because of the way they wanted to live. And it was always about like the lifestyle element was the biggest thing I've seen for entrepreneurs. And they just happened to have a area of expertise or they just happened to be very passionate about something that they could build their business around. So for me, what inspired me was the lifestyle element, realizing what I could do for me in my life and best thing ever. But what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? To keep it simple, I would say running a business whilst marketing yourself on social media is easily one of the biggest challenges because you have to have a lot a lot of discernment when it comes to running your business and not comparing to others. The biggest thing that I see is compared to previously when you would set up a business, if you were setting up a company that had, you know, you were in an office space, it was a brick and mortar business, you wouldn't be so subjected to all the other CEOs around you and what they did on a daily basis. You wouldn't know because you weren't constantly consuming their content. You would just be focusing on what you need to do for your business. Whereas now with us as online digital entrepreneurs, we are surrounded all the time by the noise of other people building. And there are so many benefits to that. But the biggest challenge is also the fact that we're so exposed to it and we can't let that influence our decisions. So biggest challenge is easily trying to build a business and staying in your own lane when you're so surrounded by other people's decisions. Question number 12, how do you approach the process of creating content that resonates with your audience and motivates them to run to work with you? Firstly, content is both strategic and it's also energetic. So strategic in a sense of you need to understand the five phases of awareness, the five phases of the buyer's journey, because that's just going to help you identify what kind of content you need to be creating to hit into those five pillars. From there, I don't like to start with the strategy. I actually like to start with the inspiration. The only thing that I do strategic first is my content process looks like I'll map out my calendar, any my any of my key dates, my sales focuses, what we're working on in the back end of the business, what we're working on at the front end. And I'll look at that as a calendar. Then from there, I'll plug in the content that I know needs to go on on a regular basis. So for example, every Monday, we'll post about our podcast. On Tuesdays, we send out an email on for the newsletter. On Thursdays or Fridays, we tend to send a value-based email. So I'll just start plugging in the content where I know it needs to go, essentially my content cadence. And then from there, I will look at those launches. I will look at what sales focus I've got for the month. And I'll create content that supports that. When I come up with ideas, I will then just try and think afterwards, if I come up with a really good idea and I'm on a dog walk, I'll take a note of that idea first. I'll plug it in, but I'll make sure that I'm still being strategic about it. So I ask myself, where does this fit in the five phases of the buyer's journey? How do I need to, how can I leverage this idea that I've just had to make it fit in with my current business focus? So that's a very quick summary of my content creation process. Number 13. What advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in online business and what learning resources do you recommend? If you're just starting out in business, my advice would be to really just stay connected to your why, stay connected to what you're motivated by for yourself, but also what you're passionate about helping others with and really focus in on one core problem that your business solves. 
just focus in. It doesn't mean that you can't branch out in the future. It doesn't mean that you can't be multi-passionate. But at the end of the day, the fundamentals of business is solving problems. So get really, really clear about which problem you solve and get like all of your content, all of your assets to support that. And then learning resources, I recommend podcasts, get into books. There are loads that I can share with you. So reach out to me and I can send you loads of recommendations. But podcasts, books, audiobooks, just content that you can listen to on the go is going to be really powerful. Question 14, how do you stay motivated and focus on your goals? What strategies do you use to manage your time effectively? Motivation comes from movement. Being focused comes from your environment. So I need to make sure that if I'm going through a season where I'm low in motivation, firstly, ask myself why. Secondly, get moving. I'm not going to wait for motivation to come around. I'm going to move. I'm going to do something that's going to bring the motivation. And the motivation, like the movement, doesn't always have to be business related. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to go for a walk first. Sometimes it's going to do some mindset work to clear my head. Whatever I need to do to get moving rather than sitting on my phone or on the couch scrolling TikTok for hours. And then getting focused on my goals. This just comes from that clarity piece as well. What am I working towards? And sometimes having a vision board around me, sometimes having post-it notes on my computer that just remind me of my goals really helps me stay focused on them. And then managing my time effectively. I like to set only one to three goals for the day. And I always have an intention for what my focus is for the day. This intention comes from reflection on the day before. What was I happy about? What do I wish I'd done? Okay, this day, how can I make this day 1% better? How can I make this day 1% better than the day before? And for managing my time, I do things like time blocking. I only set one to three goals every day. And I also make sure that I'm batching my tasks together. So I'm not flicking back and forth between a creative task and then a very overwhelming, you know, mental energy task, like finance task. Like I make sure that I'm putting the tasks that are related together so that way I can stay in the same headspace. Question 15, what have been some of the biggest risks you've ever taken in your business and how do they turn out? The biggest risks are usually the finance risks, like when you actually spend money. And every single investment I've made, even the negative one that I explained to you earlier, they've turned out where I've made a massive jump or I've at least learned something. But the biggest risk I would say was... I would say the one that jumps out to me first was this was the scariest one because then since then I've been much more comfortable making the investment was when I first signed on to work with Demi in her mastermind. This was going to be a $15,000 investment, which at this point I'd never spent more than $6,000 in a coach. So this was more than double what I'd ever spent. And it was also going to mean that my monthly expenses were very, very, were going to be much higher. Not as high as they are now, but they were going to be much higher. So that was the biggest risk. But obviously it worked out for the better because I signed to work with her a month before we were even due to start. And I think within two weeks, I'd made the money back in sales. And then within a month, I'd made the money back in cash. Okay, number 16. What do you see the future of online marketing as? And what trends do you think will have the biggest impact over the next few years? I think the future of online marketing is really leaning into the fact that you get to transparently share your life. And so with that, instead of trying to create aesthetic based content I think what's happening really well is we're seeing people come back to the style of content where it feels like we're getting to watch someone's life in real time educational content is still valuable and is still going to have its place the kind of content where we can plan in advance is very very valuable and still has it has its place but social media that is like the whole point of social media and online marketing has been not only just to market your business but it's been about based on connections And so the best connections can be forward when you take your audience through things as they go. So trying to create content that is very connection-based, trying to create content that feels like you're taking your audience on the journey with you is going to be really, really powerful for building a powerful personal brand, 
and for building stronger connections with your community. And in terms of trends, things that are having the biggest impact, yes, more video. Video is not going away. It's just a case of we're learning how to use video best. So really getting clear on how you can start to introduce more video content into your business. Podcast, podcasting is going to be really powerful. And if you can combine both the podcast and the video so that you can tap into multiple channels, that could be podcasting. It could be then Instagram and TikTok with a short form video version. You could get onto YouTube with that all from one content type. You're creating one episode, but you're filming it and you manage to hit four different channels. So this is definitely one of the big trends I'm going to see is content where we're being really, really strategic about taking one idea and spreading it on multiple platforms in different ways. Question 17, how do you navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurial life? And what do you do to stay positive and optimistic when things get tough? The big thing for me here is, for example, when I was going through the first trimester at the start of this year, 2023, I was just very, very down, but I wasn't like depressed and I wasn't like hating on life. I was just drained energetically, physically going through pregnancy fatigue was obviously very much a difficult area. And I was also having to just navigate this new reality that was, I was going to be a mum before I was prepared to be a mum because it wasn't a planned pregnancy, but we're not, we're very happy with it, of course. And so for me, for example, navigating that was just giving myself grace, giving myself the time that I needed to process that kind of information and also recognizing that I don't need to share everything with my audience. I don't need to turn every single life experience into a lesson. One of the golden rules, let's say, is I share from a scar. I don't try and teach when there's an open wound. And so if something is still quite raw and tender for you, now is not the time for you to teach with that and try and use that as a leveraged position. You can absolutely tell your audience that you're going through something. You can absolutely tell your audience that this is happening, but don't use it as a marketing tool. Don't try and use it to teach from because it's not a scar. You're still processing yourself. So wait until you get to the other side, until you can then see from the power of hindsight how this impacted you. And then navigating the ups and downs It's recognizing that there will be downs and I'm not going to let the downs slow me down because the issue here is that there's this expectation, especially with social media where everything seems like a highlight reel, is that when things are down, something's wrong. Just because you're going through a down period, it doesn't mean anything's wrong in your business. It doesn't mean you need to panic and you need to go into alert time. This is just where a case of things might just be down. And this is actually the time where you should be more consistent than ever in terms of just sticking to what's simple, sticking to what you know, and sticking to simplicity. Don't use those down periods as time for you to change up your entire strategy and to try and fix everything. It's like the expression, don't quit on a bad day, quit on a good day. Because guess what? On a good day, you're probably not even going to want to quit. But it's going to be very, very easy for you to want to quit on a bad day. And how do I stay positive and optimistic? I lean on those around me. I lean on my support system. I lean on my friends and family. If I'm struggling to be positive and optimistic myself, that is okay. I give myself grace, but I find support where I need to. And this is where networking is really important because question number 18, how important is networking in your business and what tips do you have for building strong relationships with other entrepreneurs and CEOs in your niche? So the the easiest way to network is to literally pay to get in the room with these entrepreneurs that you're so passionate about. So for example, one of the masterminds that I'm in There are some women in there who are very, very big names in the industry, who are very reputable women, but also who are just amazing women and individuals. These are women that I'd love to forge relationships with, to forge connections with, regardless of the fact that they're, you know, successful entrepreneurs. I would just love to be their friend in life. And so instead of me thinking that outside of my mastermind that I'm part of, 
why not leverage the fact that I'm in these groups? Yes, I'm paying to be in these groups, but I can make friends in there. I can forge connections with them. And the beautiful power there is there is that you don't know what opportunities are going to arise from the connections you make. So always be open to forging connections. Even if you're in a really busy season of life, you never know when it's going to come back and serve you. And you shouldn't just be making connections for the hope that it's going to come back. But that's just one of the beautiful benefits of networking is that this might then lead to you being invited to go on their podcast. This might then lead to them suggesting a speaking opportunity that they would love for you to do because they know that you're really good at this expert. So in the groups that you're a part of, whether they're free or they're paid groups that you're a part of, leverage them, showcase your skills, be willing to serve others. Like Don't just sit there and expect to be served just because you're paying to be in that container. Help others when you're in the Slack space or the Facebook page or the circle, whatever platform you guys use to communicate outside of the calls, be there and be a support system for them and really just set yourself up as someone who's known for certain things. So tell them loud and proud what you're really good at because then you're going to start to be known. You're going to start to forge friendships, which are going to be amazing for your support system. And this could come around where when there are opportunities to connect and collaborate, they're going to think of you for that area. Question 19, we're almost there. What do you think are the most important skills for success in online business and how can someone develop those skills? I would say the most important skill is making decisions and making them fast. And how can you develop them? Make decisions fast. It's really that simple. If you catch yourself overthinking on a a decision and you really find yourself hesitating, no matter what your human design type is, by the way, because there are all sorts of human design types and some people think, oh, just because their human design tells them that they should take, you know, multiple days to make a decision doesn't mean that that means you have to always be taking time to make a decision. Every single person is allowed to make a fast decision, no matter what your human design is. This is this is one of the big hangups in human design is I don't need to then get caught up in what it's telling you to do. You can make fast decisions. And the best way to develop those skills is to always find a positive outcome, to find something that you're going to reflect on positively about every single decision you've ever made. So trying essentially what this means, release regret. Never regret any decision you ever make because that regret is probably what's keeping you hung up on making decisions in the future. So to develop that skill, I want you to sit back and reflect every single decision you've made recently in the past 30 days or even the past six months or the past year. What is a positive spin you can put on every single situation? Question 20, how do you balance your personal and professional life? And what strategies do you use to avoid burnout? I'm going to say the thing that a lot of people are going to be annoyed about. I've personally never experienced burnout. The closest to burnout, but even then it wasn't burnout, was when I was in my first trimester. Because that wasn't burnout, that was just me being really sick and under the weather. I've never been burnt out in my business. And I find that people who get burnt out, the most common reason why they're burnt out is because they were chasing someone else's version of success. And when they didn't see the result they wanted, they were then drained, demotivated, completely dysregulated. And the reason why is... You are only doing the task because of the outcome. You weren't doing it for the process. So first of all, to avoid burnout, stop making decisions purely based on the potential outcome it's going to bring you and start making decisions based on the process. So fall in love with doing the work and let the outcome just be a happy bonus. So for example, when you're going through a launch, which is a common time period that people get burnt out, when you go through a launch, how can you make this launch intentional and fun and enjoyable? That way, even if no one signs up at the end, which is not going to happen, but even if no one signs up at the end, you're still going to be happy because you just had fun. Whereas if you're so hung up on the concept of exactly how many people sign up, then when it doesn't happen, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be so hung up on it that it's just going to be all you think about, which means you're going to potentially 
focus on the wrong things when it comes to planning your business, your launch? And how do you balance your personal and professional life? The word balance, throw it in the bin. Balance is like if you're on a seesaw, that's what I picture when I think of balancing. And you're never going to find the perfect balance because being perfect means you have to be in absolute equilibrium right in the bang middle, which means there's conflict. It implies that there's, if you go one way too far, then you're not in perfect balance. So then you're going to have to try and fix it and go one way the other way. And if you've ever tried to stand in the middle of a seesaw, it's really, really difficult to make it balance perfectly. It's really, really difficult. Instead, allow your personal and professional life to blend. Yes, you still need to have boundaries. But what I mean by blend is if you find yourself falling more in love with the different tasks you have to do in different areas, you're going to feel less like you have to switch off. You're going to feel less like you're going to have to take time away. And instead, what you want to do is set boundaries with the intention of why you want to have that boundary. So you don't want to have a boundary from your business because you dread your business so much. You want to have a boundary from your business because you want to make sure that you're setting aside time to be with your family. It's not because you hate your business, but it's because you love your family. So it's about switching the narrative there. And the boundaries are there purely just to make sure that you're dedicating all the different areas of your life enough time. It's not there because you're trying to separate yourself from different areas in your business because you resent them and you hate them. So trying to find that blend and the blend for me comes from having a unified purpose. No matter what, I have these different areas in my business that I get to focus on. Well, different areas in my life, I should say, that I get to focus on. My business, my family life, my romantic relationship, my social life, my personal life, so just me, myself, and I have all these different areas, my health, all of these different areas, but it's a unified purpose. And that's the vision I have for myself in my life. That's the vision I have for how I want my life to look like in all areas. And that keeps it all unified. Last question, very quick one as well. What was your highest cash day in business so far? So my highest cash day in business so far was about £12,500, which is I think about 14000 US dollars, maybe 15000 US dollars. This was in November 2022. I've since had, you know, five figure cash days since. I've had, you know, 10,000 paying fills. I've had 8,000 paying fills plus a few couple of thousand on top. So I've had five cash, five figure cash days since. But that was my absolute highest so far at the time of recording, 12,501 cash day. That month, I think, led on to being a 48, 49,000 months. So yes, a very, very high cash month in the end as well. And that brings us to the end of all of the questions. I hope you enjoyed this style of episode. And if you did, and you want to see another one like this where your question will get answered, then send me a message on Instagram or just send us an email if you want, telling us your thoughts, what you liked. And also add in your question so that we can add it to the bank and make sure we get it answered for you. Till next time. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you just loved this episode and found it helpful, please rate and leave a review. And if you know a certain CEO mama or entrepreneur in your life who would benefit from this episode, please share it with them. It means the absolute world to us when you do that. You can always find the links and resources mentioned in the show over at indiabutlerco.com. That's indiabutlerco.com. All right, that's it for today. I'll catch you here next time.